0: Hello, and welcome to season two of We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie, and each one says something about me, Because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day.
1: She once was drawing a giant penis in the kitchen, I don't know why, it was for some picture or something, and uh, (laughs) this little old lady comes out and says, "Um, look David, look at this, and she got such a twinkle in her eye, a naughty look, I mean, yes it's a cock, she said, I bet you like that don't you. We had a 100 paparazzi following the float the whole time because it was the first public appearance since his major disgrace, you know, and going in prison. And he just faced it with a smile and a laugh and sang, you know, Karma Chameleon and um, Bow Down Mister over a backing track on a lorry through the streets of London with 200,000 people watching. And I just looked at him and I thought, well, whatever they say about you, mate, you've got guts. It's always been my main objective to live my life the way I want to live it. And Those people were candles in the wind for me, you know. There were things I could look up to, things I could aspire to.
0: My guest today is the artist formerly known as Dusty O. Once the toast of Gay Soho, the drag DJ and club promoter retired a few years ago and her creator, David Hodge, re-emerged. Since then, David has established himself as an artist and an author. His memoir, The Boy Who Sat By The Window, is available now. He joins me today to discuss his heroes and heroines and how they've helped shape his personal journey. Thank you, David, for joining me today for We Can Be Heroes. The theme of this podcast is that people talk about people who've inspired them in some way, Sometimes they're famous people, sometimes they're friends and family. Who is the first person you'd like to talk about and why have you chosen this particular person?
1: Well, I think it has to be because this particular person, because he's written the foreword to my book. George Allen O'Dowd, Boy George.
0: Most people of our generation or my generation certainly will remember the first time they saw Boy George on Top of the Pops with Culture Club. What was your first introduction to him? When were you first aware of him?
1: But I was aware of them right from the beginning, and him right before, before Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, when um, a single called White Boy was released. And I used to sort of devour the music papers back in those days, as we all did, because that was our resource no internet or anything like that so you know nme and magazines like that and i remember seeing this advert for white boy and thinking oh my god what's that what is it you know and then after seeing white boy another friend of mine used to collect id magazine remember that right in the very 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 earliest days of id magazine when it was kind of like a little square booklet thing there was a few pictures of george and i put the two together I was still at school then, obviously. And we were very limited in how we could access people or the images that we could obtain of people and, you know, the music that we could get from them. You know, it was all very, very limited in those days, wasn't it?
0: Back in those days, Top of the Pops was... Everyone watched it, and you watched it with your family. It was sort of similar to the moment when... Bowie appeared doing Starman, and that sort of set all these young queer kids alight across the country. It was a
1: similar moment. It was definitely a similar moment. When he started appearing on TV, every time he came on, it was there was a, a, a brouhaha from the press. My dad was always kind of cool about things. Whenever George was on TV, he wouldn't say much, actually, and he never used to say much to me either when I started dressing up. It, d- it didn't really bother him. It didn't have much effect on him. But obviously my mother was... Um, vehement in her opposition. Until a million years later, she came to my birthday party and George was performing there. And it was at a club called Sound in uh, Leicester Square. And I introduced them and um, he said to me, oh, I've got you to blame, have I? My mother
0: met Mark Almond at my 30th birthday party. She was all over him. I've always loved Mark. I was like,
1: no, you didn't. <laughs> it's amazing how that can change, isn't it? When my dad was ill, before he died, George was on this, not this morning, uh, loose women, and I would texted him and said, um, if possible, say hello to my dad because he'll be watching, he's in hospital and la la la. And he did say hello to him and get well soon. It was sweet, yeah. And My mother, oh, my God, you'd think, um, you know, the Pope had sent a personal message or something like that.
0: The great thing about George, I think, as a pop star was that even though at the beginning he was a bit cagey, like, people were in 1982, 1983. He was always such an obviously spiky queen. And it was just amazing for a
1: teenage boy to watch that. I find it so inspiring. You think back and you think, how could people think that he was anything other than what he was? There used to be newspaper articles of like mad, mad, oh, I've got a story about this actually, mad Americans saying that, that he'd fathered their child. Years and years later in the 90s, I was at his house in Hampstead and the... The bell rang on the gate the security gate he was upstairs getting ready putting his microphone we were going out somewhere i said oh i'll get it i'll get it so there's this very you know nice looking run-of-the-mill 40 plus year old lady standing there and i said um, I, I said to the intercom yeah how can i help um she said oh i'm here to see george so i just presumed that she was a make artist or, so I don't know, something. So I said, oh, coming in like that. So I pressed the secution. She came in, came into the hallway, which in his house then was a massive high-ceilinged hallway. And I said, oh, I'll have a seat. He'll be down in a minute. <laughs> and, and I just left her to it. Went into the kitchen to make myself a cup of tea. <laughs> and then I heard this almighty, what are you doing in here? <laughs> as George came down the stairs, and it was actually the woman who'd gone to the press in America and had taken him to court in America, saying that he'd fathered her child.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And I left her on her own.
0: (laughs) We need to make the leap. So you're growing up in, in Birmingham, is that right? Well, Warsaw, just outside Birmingham and you saw him on top of the Pops,
1: and now you're friends with him. How did you first meet? Years and years ago when George lived in Warsaw, he lived with Martin Degville, and Martin Degville from Zig Zig Sputnik, his nan lived next door to my nan. We had this like kind of weird, odd connection. When George was at the height of his heroin addiction and went on stage at the anti-apartheid gig in Clapham Common, absolutely off his face, you know, really, really off his face. I'd gone down to London with my friend Sue on the coach from Birmingham to see this concert. And we got right at the front. And I was very dressed up in those days. It was sort of, you know, my, my gothy days. And we were being bullied by a big gang of girls who were probably only about 13, actually. One of the security guards could see what was going on and he just said, come over, come over. So he got me and my friend Sue over and he said, you're obviously here for George. I went, yeah. He said, well, stand here, don't move and you'll have a good view. And then he went off. So, of course, the first thing we did was head backstage, you know, like we didn't stand there for a second. We ran off. We escaped as soon as we were backstage and we watched the whole performance at the side of the stage, literally at the side of the stage. And as George was coming off, it was being filmed for MTV, though I didn't know that at the time. I was aware that there was cameras there and everything, but the MTV thing comes back later. So that's why I'm mentioning it. And George sort of, like, comes straight over to me and gives me a kiss on each cheek. And I thought, oh, how strange, you know. <laughs> then he took Sue and I back into his Winnebago and he was, was all being filmed and he was so out of it. He was going pen on his nose and, oh, my God, it was a, a fiasco. Signing things for fans and just falling to sleep halfway. And then he decided to go outside and there was a big photo line-up. There was Sting, Sade, Spandau Ballet, loads of people. And he was rolling around on the grass. Uh, he was so out of it in front of them. It was a nightmare. And then he went, you know, I think it was Wham! Wham's final concert that night. And so he said, like, I'm going to Wham, do you want to come? And we went, yeah. And we tried to get in the car, but his security wouldn't let us. No, you're not coming. So that was the first time I properly met him. Then, about five years after that, when I moved down to London... Then we started to have like mutual friends and things like that, just from going out clubbing and looking a freak, you know. I finally met him properly and we sort of hit it off really quickly. And within about three weeks really of us meeting, we became quite good friends and hanging out in each other's houses and going out. Then in 2000, this is the strange thing. He said to me, oh, I'm doing this documentary for VH1 called Unplugged. It was when Culture Club were reforming. He said, will you do an interview on it and they'll ask you a few questions? So I said, yeah, yeah, of course I will. I'd love to. It was filmed in my flat and George we was sitting in the one corner and whenever they asked me a question that he was like to play down, he'd go like, oh, no, no, no. play." You know? so, so I was getting all these visual cues. But anyway, I did this interview, fine, and it was aired about three or four months later. And they'd pinned it together with all that really early footage that they'd taken at the Clapham Common thing. It was so strange because it says, George fell into the arms of friend and fellow gender bender Dusty O. Well, I'd only just met him, you know. <laughs> but I had to go along with this, um, this MTV idea that we'd been friends from the drug days when we actually we hadn't. I've got a relative who lives in America who phoned my mother and said, um, I've just seen our David on television with with boy George taking drugs. (laughs) Well, obviously I hadn't been taking drugs and I wasn't taking drugs.
0: He clearly inspired you in terms of expressing yourself the way that you express yourself visually and the styles you took on and the image that you had. How else did
1: he inspire you? I always loved his courage. If he wanted to wear a wedding dress, he'd wear a wedding dress. If he wanted to say something, he'd say it. And the consequences would go through the window, you know. I admired his courage and I admired his fearlessness. I just loved that fearlessness, really. You know, he laid his life on the line, really, in in a lot of respects for his fame. Not with people trying to kill him or anything like that, but people are aggressive to him. And even today, are, some people are aggressive. But the fact that you compromise your freedom and your, your anonymity and your ability to do what you want and form a relationship with whoever you want. And, you know, he, he sacrificed quite a lot to achieve what he's got and what he did. And, and I like the fact that he's still doing it. I think when you talk about
0: his fearlessness, the few people that I've talked to on this podcast have celebrated particular icons. Grace Jones was somebody's choice. And again, it was because they saw them as being fearless. I think for a lot of young queer kids who probably experienced bullying or being ostracised at school, to see somebody
1: who was so unapologetic and fearless is actually really inspiring, isn't it? And also winning, you know for that that initial eight years or so after the first single they were the biggest band in the world without doubt he was a bigger star than Prince a bigger star than Madonna he was winning you know a millionaire at 21 I remember George's manager once said to me um years later um it was at the Albert Hall and we were all sitting in a box and there was Georgie's manager and his family and things like that. And it had been fairly a fairly quiet gig, really. They hadn't, The crowd hadn't really got behind him much. But then all of a sudden, they all did, and everyone sort of ran to the front. And, and I said, oh, does it make you feel proud? You know, it does me, as his friend. And he, he said, oh, I'm proud of my Georgie. Millionaire at 21. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, he was a winner as well, and I loved that, I loved that. In spite of all the gay... You know, drag. We'd say drag now. In those days, it was gender bender. Did exactly what he wanted. said exactly what he wanted. had a fantastic life and, and in essence won.
0: And despite the heroin addiction and the way the tabloids turned on him because he courted the media in a way that pop stars hadn't really. He was the first kind of tabloid pop star. When they turned on him, it was really vicious. And he's obviously had subsequent things we won't go into, but he's had other public things that have happened. And yet he's still there. He's still here. He's still doing stuff. He's still making a noise and and creating conversations all these years later, which is an
1: extraordinary achievement. He, He is absolutely fearless in many ways. When George came out of prison a few years back, I was running a club, my club at the time, Tranny Shack, and we did a float for Gay Pride. And... It was, you know, all through the streets of London, right? You know, Tottenham Court Road, Oxford Circus. You couldn't get more public than that float was going to be. And I'd asked George if he wanted to do it. I said, do you want, you know, you're out now, you're out of prison, you've got nothing to... You know the truth, I know the truth. The world doesn't necessarily know the truth, but will you do the float? Will you come on the float? and and say so, you know it was a, st- a statement really statement for me statement for the club and a statement for him and he said yes and We had a hundred paparazzi following the float the whole time because it was the first public appearance since his major disgrace, you know, and going in prison. And he just faced it with a smile and a laugh and sang, you know, Karma Chameleon and um, Bow Down Mister over a backing track on a lorry through the streets of London with 200,000 people watching. And I just looked at him and I thought, well, whatever they say about you, mate, you've got guts.
0: Who is the second person that you'd like to nominate and why have you chosen this person?
1: Vivian Westwood. Because for my whole life, well, from as soon as I became interested in fashion and clothes and the power of clothes, she was always the person that inspired me the most and that I'm still fascinated by to this day, really.
0: When I was working for the gay policing project Gallup back in 1989, 1990, I worked with this chap who was her nephew. And mm. so I got to meet her socially through him. Mm. She came to my flat a few times for dinner. She was living in Clapham Common at the time. And I went to a bonfire party. She just met the husband, Andrea, yeah. she just met him. And we went to this bonfire night party. And she was so not what I was expecting her to be like. I expected it to be the grand dame of fashion. And she was completely not like that. <laughs> she was incredibly funny and witty. And then we went to one of her shows in Paris, and half of the half of the collection went missing on the train going across oh, on the Eurostar,
1: oh, which was pinning tea towels together and things like that. I can imagine. I can imagine.
0: Again, somebody who made such a huge cultural impact way back in '76 and '77 with punk, and then managed to reinvent herself and stay relevant
1: for so long. Totally, totally. And she's still relevant in her own way now. I mean, Andreas, the husband, does most of the design work now because she's an old lady, you know, But and he's doing it brilliantly, I have to say, he's relaunched that label in a, in a kind of direction that I never expected it to go, and I think it's amazing. But she has literally constantly reinvented herself and constantly stayed relevant and not really cared Whether she did or didn't, I think, that's what I always get from Vivian. It's like, you either like her ideas or get lost, you know. She doesn't care. she doesn't give a damn whether you do or whether you don't. And I always think she's someone who is more deserved of a bit of respect, really, because she did more than invent the squiggle pattern for the new romantics or put a safety pin in, you know... In your clots when you were in the punk day she's done a lot more since and she's just worked and worked and worked and i love the way she constantly reinvents herself the way she constantly reinvents ideas old ideas become transformed and changed and modernized and she's just like a magpie of ideas and culture for me personally she's always represented exactly how i would have liked to have been in my dreams, you know. (laughs) She's just a fascinating lady and very, very, very important. I believe that she's more important than people like Coco Chanel and Dior and things like that. I think she's far more relevant, far more, for us as British people, she deserves a lot more respect than she gets.
0: Back in 1994, I'd fallen out with the Stonewall Group because I had reported in Time Out on the Age of Consent vote there was a candidate vigil outside while the vote was happening and it was very very peaceful when the result was announced that they were voting for 18 and not for equality at 16 there was a spontaneous riot i personally felt that was the correct response but somebody from stonewall came out and told us all off and i wrote this up in time out anyway fast forward a bit we go to the equality show but I wasn't invited to the after party. My friend from Gallup was there with Vivian. They're getting ready to go because Vivian is one of Stonewall's guests. And I had to explain to her that I wasn't invited to the party, that I'd been expressly banned from attending. And Vivian was really annoyed by this. So she said, well, in that case, you must be my escort and escort me to the party. And she insisted on this. So I basically arrive at this party to which I'd been expressly not invited with Vivian Westwood, their guest of honour on my arm i mean the looks (laughs) on the faces of the organizers it was hilarious
1: (laughs) amazing but that you know that doesn't surprise me you hear all sorts of rumors about vivian don't you on the on the on the circuit um and amazing stories and things and i choose to believe them all because i love I, i love her you know I've wasted half of the money I've ever earned on her clothes, so I hope she loves me (laughs) back. I was about to ask about the clothes.
0: (laughs) Your alter ego, your previous persona, Dusty O, was famous for wearing Vivian Westwood. That was one of your statements, wasn't it? You were always in Westwood. It was.
1: It was my gimmick. (laughs) Couture on the floor. It was just because I loved it, you know, and I think I was probably one of the first sort of out-there commercial DJ, drag queen, whatever you want to call me, club promoter, who I always tried to do it in a non tacky way. I wanted to look couture, I wanted to look high finish, I wanted to look, you know, perfect, as perfect as I could make myself. And of course, it was always with with Vivian's inspiration. I wanted to represent myself in a kind of like fashion y way, and Vivian always helped me to do that. Well, you always
0: looked fantastic in your outfits, I remember them very well, and you did always look very classy. And also the way that Dusty's image kind of evolved. The last time that I saw you as Dusty, the look was very grand dame, it was very different to how you'd been some years before. (laughs) Well, I was
1: getting older though, wasn't I? I was in my mid-40s by that point, so I just thought, oh, you can't keep, you know, you look like Whitney doing Britney. Uh, so, I, I kind of altered it a bit. So Somebody I think,
0: needs to have a word with Madonna about this.
1: I think she looks amazing. <laughs> Everyone's so mean about her. And I can see what there is to talk about. You know, it's very obvious what there is to talk about with how Madonna looks. But I like it. I love it. You know, I loved it when Pete did it and transformed himself with constant changing. I love the aesthetic of change. I think it's up to her as well. You know, if she wants to do it, let her do it. Well,. There's no, there's no stopping her, but if she wants to do it, then whose business is it to criticise her for it? I don't know. Not mine, anyway.
0: When she did The girly Show, which was back in 93, at which point she must have been about 35 or 36, maybe, Smash Hits did a preview of the show with pictures and the headline was something like, Put it away, Grandma.
1: Well, I think that's still prevalent, isn't it, now, for all of us? You know, not just her for all of us. I think ageism is rife. I talk about Madonna in my book. I went to dinner with her once and she was in a bad mood and hardly spoke to me. I was invited through a friend, not because I know Madonna or anything like that. So I got to sit at the same table as Madonna. but She she hardly spoke to us and she was in a really grumpy mood and wasn't, wasn't particularly pleasant, let's put it like that. People always said to me afterwards, Oh, what's Madonna like? What's Madonna like? I said... Uh, She's a woman of few words, particularly to me. I actually went on a Channel 4 programme, a lie detector programme, to talk about going to dinner with Madonna. You know, you had to have like a a story and then they'd lie detect you and this panel would decide if you were lying or not. No one believed me that I'd been to dinner with Madonna, (laughs) so I went on this programme and I passed. I did pass, so at least I can hold my head up high now and say, yep. I went to dinner with Madonna. She said three words to me, (laughs) but I've dined out on it for years. And obviously it's very, very important part of my book.
0: I didn't know that you'd had dinner with Madonna. I'm very impressed. Who is the third person that you'd like to talk about and why have you chosen
1: them? I was going to say Pete Burns, but one gender bender's uh, enough, I think. So I've chosen another lady called Molly Parkin. Molly is... An artist, a writer, um, TV personality, she, she was editor of various magazines and things in the past. Now she's a very, very, she's an old lady, she's she's 90 now, and she, she's she got her own particular style. She's very, very dressy and she was an alcoholic and used to hang around with Francis Bacon and oh my God, you, you name it, Molly's done it very open in the 80s and 70s about her sex life and all the men that she liked she'd slept with and everything and I got to meet Molly actually when she was in her 80s for the first time and um, I went to her flat. She lives in a little studio, council studio flat just off the King's Road and she just impressed me so much and, and amused me so much. There's this is exotically clad woman with a a turban and flowing robes and all jewellery and fully made up, answers the door and go in and she says, oh, I love living here. And I thought, why? You know, it's not on the nicest of estates. But then she showed me her back garden. She'd got a little rooftop terrace. She'd made it like a little jungle and it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. She said, I've lived in Chelsea. I've lived in New York. I've lived in all these amazing places, had big houses. She said, but I've never been as happy as I am here. All the neighbours know me, the children bring me sweets and cakes, and I can talk to anyone. All I have to do is open my front door, and I'm out in the middle of the estate, and I can talk to people. I'm never lonely. And I thought, how lovely is that? You know, how amazing is that? And I really sort of admire her work as well, her artwork. I love I love her ethos to it, and the stories that she tells. And she's quite saucy as well, Molly. She's about fabulous company. She once was drawing a giant penis in the kitchen. I don't know why, it was for some picture or something. And um, this little old lady comes out, you know, looking like Molly Parkin, obviously, and says, "Um, look David, look at this. And it was, she got such a twinkle in her eye, a naughty look. I mean, yes, it's a cock. She said, I bet you like that, don't you? I was like, oh my God, this is like my nan talking to me <laughs> And um, she also told me a wonderful story. When she lived in New York, she used to organise orgies. She said, I was organised an orgy, she said, and, and I invited all the people to come who, are, who I quite like. She was married at the time and she said, and my husband said, oh, this one, this one. And I was dressed all in rubber and I had a whip. She said, and um, before we were all going back to our apartment, we went to a bar and there was this lovely transsexual and she got very large boobs. So I said, oh, you must come back to my orgy. She told the transsexual lady, back to the orgy. One of the guests complained to Molly about it. Oh, you shouldn't have invited her. You know, she'll put people off. And Molly turned around and she said to this man, she said, what rubbish, she said. Look at her, she's beautiful. She's got massive tits and a huge cock. What more could you ask for? And I loved her for that. I thought, oh, you amazing person. And then when I did my um, exhibition at the Houses of Parliament, um, I'd done a little portrait of her. It was a very naive kind of portrait. I said, will you come and like be the guest of honour? And she said, oh, I'd love to, I'd love to. And so everyone made a big fuss of her and she loved it. You know, she loves the attention. Who who wouldn't? But she was lovely. She was so sweet.
0: I've met her a few times. I met her on the scene through people at a bar. And then she came to read from her memoir, at Polari at the South Bank. And she was oh, wow. such a hoot. I mean, she was fantastic. She's,
1: oh, she's a really good fun. She is. She's fun. She's open-minded. She's clever. She's kind of romantic-y as well. You know, she's got this lovely, even though she's saucy and has had this spectacular past, she's very sort of innocent about it and she's naive in the way she speaks about it, which I think is lovely. She's a charming, charming lady. And again, another person who I think deserves to be recognised more
0: it strikes me that the three people that we've talked about have all been fearless and have lived their lives according to, they followed their own path without worrying about what society or the wider world thought. Would you agree with that?
1: Totally agree with it. It's the way I've always tried to be as well with varying degrees of success. But it's always been my main objective to live my life the way I want to live it without harming anyone in the process or hurting anyone. But I've always been very aware that sort of some of my ideas are not mainstream. Well, actually, most of my ideas are not mainstream. And how I view myself in the world is probably not mainstream either. And those people were candles in the wind for me. You know, there were things I could look up to, things I could aspire to. And I thank them massively for that.
0: So for many years, you worked... As a DJ and as a club promoter, when you had your own club nights, I used to come to them. Then you left that world. When did you leave that world? Six years ago. And then you began... Were you already painting before? Was that a new thing? There? No.
1: Only my face. <laughs> I'd painted the same picture for 20 years, hadn't I? <laughs> you know, I was quite bored of it by that point. And literally, I was bored of it. Really, really, really bored of my lifestyle. When Madame Jojo's closed and I lost... My Wednesday night, which had always been for a decade, sort of my main income, really, and the, my passion. You know, when I did Trani Shat, that was the club that I always wanted to do as a child, as a teenager, rather, and going to everyone else's clubs. I always wanted a club like Trani Shat, and I did it, and I did it for 10 years, and it was massively successful. So, but you can only do something for so long, I can anyway, without tiring of it. You know, I was gradually becoming an alcoholic, the narcissism of that lifestyle is damaging mentally. I didn't want to be one of those people that just hung around the scene. I wanted to be a doer, not a watcher. Gradually, you fade away and become older. And Look at me, I was big in 93, you know. And I didn't want to be that person. I, I thought i either leave it and leave it, just go, or become that other funny person that I didn't want to be. So I left it, and for about... A year, I just hid away really. I was working at the Museum of Comedy, doing front of house there because I had to work because I've got no, you know, even though I'd made a lot of money in the past, I'd spent a lot of money as well. I was in a very, very bad financial position. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed going to work. I enjoyed getting up. I enjoyed the structure of the day. I enjoyed not being the person calling the shots all the time and saying do this, do that. Oh, we'll have this or we'll have that act on and all the things that come with promoting your own night. I'd been my own boss for 20 years and no one had actually really told me, no, you know, we're doing it this way or that's not a good idea. But I hadn't had that. So when I started work, it was all new to me. It was like being 16, 17 again. My whole identity and who I had been up to that point was totally irrelevant you know, on the club scene and on the discussing scene and celebrities and blah, blah, blah. People knew who I was and I knew what was expected of me. I knew I turned up in a Vivienne Westwood outfit, was funny, was bitchy, blah, blah, blah. But in this new world, I was just a middle-aged man with a goatee beard who hadn't got that many skills and was going into a new job right at the bottom with all the babies and it was very difficult. But I was able to rediscover myself, so... And I had lost myself, and I didn't realise I'd lost myself until I had to be me again.
0: I had a similar experience when I got made redundant from Time Out. For a long time, a large part of my identity was wrapped up in being...
1: Yeah, you were, you were Paul Burston from Time Out. Yeah, <laughs> I was just, yeah, from Chat. It
0: was a big adjustment. All credit to you that you did that, and also that you then found another outlet for your creativity and the creative side of yourself by doing your art how did it compare in terms of presenting your work to the world your your art to the world compared to presenting yourself to the world the way you had been for years was that a very different experience for you in some
1: ways yeah but but i think the thing is about art you've always got when you when you're putting art out and you're putting it out for people to look at and criticize and compliment You've always got that backup that you can say, however awful it is, oh, it's meant to be like that. Really, art is about ideas, isn't it? And presenting ideas. And, and what is there to criticise in an idea, really? I paint ideas and they, they are what they are. And if you like them, you like them. If you don't, fine. I don't look at them. I took with me, when I moved into that, the art world, my old punky tranny self you know that fuck off I don't care whether you like it I'm doing it and that's exactly what I did really and and I think that helped and saved me from a lot of internal self-critique and things like that because I work fast and I just do it and throw it out there that and that's how it is and I'll never run out of ideas and I'll never run out of opinions and that's all you need really and how you produce it is kind of like a Byproduct, your process is a byproduct.
0: You mentioned before about obviously painting your face and then painting paintings, but there's also a continuation in terms of your attitude, isn't there?
1: Oh my God, totally. I won't do commissions. I hate commissions unless it's of something that I particularly want to do anyway. Recently, I was commissioned to do a picture of Regina Fong. She was like a big for people who don't know big drag. Drag star in the 80s, 90s. And um, I said to them before I even started it, I said, one, I want half the money up front because if I do it and spend days doing it and then you don't like it and won't buy it, you know, I ain't having that. So the old drag sort of part to me came out. I said, I want half up front. Two, whatever the result is, I'm not interested in hearing your opinion or your critique about it. You accept it as a piece of my art. And that's an, at the end of the story. It's my idea. you take it or you don't take it. So they agreed to all the pre-contracts, and I painted, and I was very pleased with the result, actually. It's really good, I think. And they like it too, which is a bonus. But yeah, like I hate doing commissions, I hate being told how to do things, and it's kind of annoying really, because people most people are 99 percent of people are amazing, but you get that one percent that want it to match the the sofa. And that's not what it's about, really.
0: What prompted you to decide to write the memoir now?
1: I decided to write the memoir because i have been thinking about it for years, but I didn't feel that it had an appropriate last chapter. I'm not saying end, because I'm still alive and still doing things, and I hope there'll be another book in another (laughs) 10 years. But I needed an appropriate final chapter before I, I started. And when I exhibited at Parliament... I felt that that was an appropriate ending for it. I thought right okay we'll talk about all the ups and downs of the drag is, the bullying as a kid, working in lighthouse aids, all the things that are, you know, happened to me. But it did need an ending. It couldn't be oh and then and then she became an artist and sold a few pictures. That didn't seem good enough to me. And i had done exhibitions and things, but obviously the when I went to to do the parliament one I was the first openly queer type of artist to be invited to show in parliament so I thought okay that's a good that's a good ending you know there's ups and downs and it finishes on a high on a nice high and um, so I I took it up to there and then you know the final chapter is oh I wonder what will happen next because a lot does happen in that book more than I actually thought about to be honest I thought well what because initially when I was thinking about it I was thinking about what will people want to read and you know it became a bit sort of celebrity name drop and not that interesting and then when the publishers hooked me up with my editor we rewrote most of it between us and it turned into more of an emotional story of my story my emotional story not just like a big name drop, drop, in session and, oh, I did well here, oh, and then it went terrible and I, I took loads of coke. I didn't want it to be like that and it became much more human and I'm really, 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 really proud of it. And I've never said that about anything in my life, about anything I've ever done, any of my work, any of my achievements, but I'm proud of this book because it's truth, it's honesty and it's like publishing your most Publishing your brain, really. For everyone to sort of have a read of. (laughs) All your secrets.
0: I think people outside of publishing don't appreciate just how big a contribution a really creative editor can make to your book.
1: Oh my God, he turned it upside down. I say now that what I presented them with was a manuscript really, just a a manuscript of ideas and incidents. He turned it into the book, but kept my voice, which I'm so happy about. They really did do a great job with matching us up. I enjoyed the process a lot and and I'm very proud of it. I still can't believe that a publisher and a literary agent took a punt on me and and thought that that was a good idea, you know, and, oh, yeah, let's go with that. (laughs) Thank you so much, David. It's
0: been really great talking
1: to you. Thank you so much for asking me, Paul. I really appreciate it.
0: My thanks to David for being such a great guest. And you can find his book at all good bookshops. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes.
1: This is Louisa Young on We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burstyn. You know, I'm a posh, blonde London girl with a lisp and I'm never going to be Johnny Cash. However, Johnny Cash has told me to be who I am. So I've just got to really work out what that is. Thanks, Johnny, because I might not have got off my arse. Everybody's grandma loves her. Three-year-olds love her. Everybody loves her. Particularly for the British, I mean, I've got this theory that none of us would ever have sex if we didn't have alcohol and there would certainly never have been any babies born.
0: This is Adele Anderson on We Can Be Heroes, discussing my heroes with my good friend, Paul Burston. When you listen to him, you don't know whether you're listening to a man or a woman. He can just break your heart with the songs that he sings. I took an overdose. When I woke up the next morning, I remember they brought in the newspapers. And on the front page was April Ashley. This has been We Can Be Heroes with Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.